0: I want to welcome you here this morning, welcome those that are viewing online, I'm going to have you stand together, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer this morning. How many know there's a lot of needs out there? How many recognize that? You know, this is, I'm, I'm going to call this not a normal time, right? And so there's a lot of challenges and people have to do life differently and it creates a lot of anxiety and apprehension inside of people. And so let's pray this morning that God would move in a powerful way. My prayer in the last little while, I've been praying that God's Spirit would just be poured out. How many really could use a new, renewed outpouring of God's Spirit in your life, a new season of refreshing, a new openness to the things of God? Amen? Wouldn't, isn't that kind of the great need in our culture right now, that God's spirit would just move on the hearts and alleviate the fears, alleviate the anxieties and the frustrations, the challenges that our people are facing, and that we would just turn our eyes to God and bring all of our cares. Anybody have some cares today? Anybody have some challenges that are before you? How many would like to just lay those burdens down? That's the goal. You know, we're just going to come to God and lay our burdens down. How can we do that? He cares. Excuse me, for us. So let's pray. little tickle in my throat there. So Father, we thank you this morning for your amazing mercy and grace. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And right now, Father, all of the burdens that are weighing on our hearts, those that are afflicted physically, those that are afflicted emotionally, those that are struggling financially, those that are uh, struggling relationally. Lord, we just pray right now, we just lay every concern, every burden at your feet. We know that you're a caring person. We know that you're loving. We know that you're understanding. And Father, we just commit these things to you. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, The third person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit, just invade our lives. Just renew us, refresh us, revive us, reinvigorate us. Lord, may you speak powerfully into our innermost being. May we hear the voice of God. The fact that we're tuning in, the fact that we're here this morning suggests, Lord, that we are seeking your face. We desire wisdom from above, Father. Lord, we want to hear your voice today. Speak into our lives. Lord, may you strengthen us and comfort us. May you uh, direct our steps. May you protect us and provide for us. Father, I pray today, may you instruct us and teach us in the way we should go. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. Some of you may be familiar with the name G. Campbell Morgan. Many of you probably don't know his name. He lived in a different time. He was one of 150 young people who sought entrance into the Wesleyan ministry in the 1888. He had passed a written examination, but he had faced uh, the test of giving a trial sermon in front of a panel. So all 150 young men stood in front of this panel at different times and spoke. And when the results were released, Morgan's name was not among the, was, was actually among the 105 who were rejected. And he was so crushed by this, uh, rejection, that he wired his father one word, rejected. And then he sat down and wrote in his diary, very dark, everything seems still, God knows best. The reply to his wire was quick to, to arrive. His, it read, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven, dad. Now, I'll just give you an idea who, who G. Campbell Morgan is, the fact that we even know who he is, he heeded his father's words of encouragement. How many know words can be so powerful and the right word at the right time can really lift us up and help us along our journey? He went on to minister the word of God for the next 52 years, speaking to thousands. He actually authored 80 books and was very instrumental. in in the UK as a minister of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? So even though people didn't see it, God saw it, and uh, his father encouraged him to continue on the journey. So I would say this, the power of our words can either bring harmony, it can bring consolation and comfort and encouragement, but it also can bring strife and anger and hurt and division, right? Right? We see that words are extremely powerful. They can help build people up, build families up, build communities up, or they can tear people down, tear churches down, tear communities down, tear nations down. Just the power of words alone. And it's amazing how much the book of Proverbs addresses this issue of communication. Matter of fact, I got so enamored with this topic that I wrote a thesis last year on communications from the book of Proverbs. I started adding up all of the actual verses in the book of Proverbs. There are 886 verses in the book of Proverbs, and 27% of the book deals with communication. Isn't that amazing? Either listening, speaking, responding to, applying what is being communicated to us. So, How many get an idea that communication is very powerful? As a matter of fact, I was thinking about what makes human beings different. First of all, human beings have the ability to reason and think. You know, Animals, you know, a lot of times, are instinctual. And yeah, they may have different little signals they can warn their group or whatever. But human beings can communicate at a far higher level. And yet, sometimes I wonder at what level we're really communicating at. Isn't that true? And as we're going to see today, I think we're going to see the difference between what does it mean to have wisdom versus what does it mean to walk in foolishness or folly or living a life that's really not trusting in anybody but ourselves rather than in God. Paul Kopik points out uh, in Proverbs, says the majority of these Proverbs in, in the chapter we're looking at, Proverbs 18, are dealing with our speech and its effects, all are concerned with the attitudes and actions that destroy relationships and community. David Hubbard insightfully shares that one of the primary roles of a healthy leader is trying to navigate either the well-being of his family or his church or his business or his organization or his school. And I mean, listen, we all have capacities at time in leadership roles. If we're a parent, we're a leader. Like, how are we navigating through this thing? And he says, uh, this is David Hubbard, he says, a prime task of leaders is to avert conflict. In other words, when we can avoid it, we do, when they can, and resolve it when they cannot avert it. So how many know you can't live in perpetual conflict? It's just not a healthy state. And so it's important that we learn how to walk in peace, how to walk in harmony, how to get along with other people. That's an important skill. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 20, verse, uh, well, he goes on to say, conflict, conflict hurts individuals, drains away energy, and threatens the covenants that hold families and society together. Proverbs 20 verse 3 says it's one's honor to avoid strife. It's one's honor to avoid it. But every fool is quick to quarrel. Already now we're getting an idea that, you know, when we look at the word fool here, I think we kind of relegate it to people that are just a small segment of the population. But I would argue in Canada, if the definition of wisdom is to fear God and most people don't, then most people fall into the category of being a fool. And that's why probably there's so much conflict in our culture today, because most of us are operating on the wrong basis. And so hopefully today, as we're listening and we're trying to walk in God's wisdom and walk in God's ways and fear God, we're going to learn how to walk in harmony and in peace and in relationship. And I think people are longing for that. People get tired of perpetual conflict. They really do. It says in Proverbs 17, 14, starting a quarrel or a fight is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. In other words, you know, sometimes less said is the better. Sometimes nothing said is the better. Sometimes dropping the matter before conflict escalates is wisdom. How many know that? And so that's what we're learning. We're going to learn here how to avoid some of these things that uh, destroy relationships. So I think learning how to handle conflict is a critical element in living a happy life. To live a life of stability and good order is needed for people to do well. And I think that's one of the reasons why for a long time Canada has flourished as a nation, because we've had a lot of stability And we've had good order, and we've honored law in our nation, and it's been a great blessing. And there's other parts of the world that have not experienced that, and it's been a lot more traumatic and a lot more difficult for people to live in harmony and have, you know, focus on the things that really matter to us, and that's our family, our relationships with other people. So wisdom is to learn the way of the Lord and then to take that way and apply it to our lives. So this is the path we're going to look at today for a successful life before God. It says here in Proverbs 18.15, the heart of the discerning acquires knowledge, for the ears of the wise seek it out. So here you are today, the wise. Hopefully, you're acquiring knowledge. Hopefully, you're seeking it out. You're trying to figure out how to do this better, how to live life more wisely and more successfully, more obediently. And So we're going to look at two elements today that challenge the condition of our hearts and helps us to discover where we're really placing our trust. You know, we can, we can say to people very glibly, yes, I trust God, and yet everything about our actions belie that fact. You know, it, 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 we, can be, we can be saying one thing and doing another. We can be saying, yeah, I really do trust God, but the reality is we're trusting something other than God. And it's evident by our response to situations in life. So let's take a look at how You know, to ignore this this wisdom from these ancient writers, leave us many times with broken relationships in the path that we've walked or in the wake of our boat. You know? So let's take a look at these two elements. The first one is the condition of our heart and our speech. And this is true. One of the arguments that I made in my thesis is that what comes out of our mouth is really indicative of what's inside our hearts. And a lot of times, you know, what really comes outside of our mouths under pressure is really telling us stuff that we didn't know existed inside of our hearts. And how many know we're kind of in a pressure time right now? COVID is really an opportunity and a little bit of pressure on all of our lives in different ways, and it's kind of squeezing some stuff out of us. How many notice that? And some of you might be saying, I don't really like some of the stuff that's coming out. And so then we got to work and say, Lord, we're going to have to do some heart work, we're going to have to make some change in our attitude, and our thinking, and our understanding, and maybe we have to come before God and say, I need help in this area in my life to see transformation. So when our hearts are wrong, our messaging will reflect that. People who are contentious, <clears throat> the Bible says here, are usually considered foolish or they lack wisdom. They are morally deficient. Their real focus is on themselves. So the conflict is and the isolation of selfish people. The problem with unhealthy communication is that it destroys relationships. I mean, that's true. And it destroys community. And uh, we're looking at a time right now where our culture is really on the edge. We can see it around us. We see a lot of, you know, it's, it's becoming more fragile. And I think we're hearing a lot of words being said and a lot of you know, heated words being said, a lot of anger being expressed, a lot of irritation, a lot of complaining, a lot of grumbling, right? We, we get all of that. Paul Kopik says the root of the word communication is to have something in common, okay? We have to be on the same page. Communion, common, so communication. If we're going to really communicate you can only communicate with people if you speak the same language. It's pretty hard when you're trying to communicate with somebody who doesn't speak the same language. How many know that's true? How many know it's even more difficult sometimes to speak to people in the same language, but you have a different value system? You know, and what I'm noticing today, people aren't even listening to each other anymore, right? We're just kind of blocking people out. So the fear of God, I think, brings us to a healthy respect, not only for God, but for other people. And that should be evident in how we treat people. And yet here in Proverbs 18, verse 1, it says here, an unfriendly person pursues selfish ends and against all sound judgment starts quarrels. Now, it's interesting the NIV translated an unfriendly person. This is the person who separates himself or isolates himself from other people because he or she is consumed by their own desires. That's what it's really saying. So this is a a person who separates himself to pursue their own selfish ambition or their own goal. And and because of that, they become less oriented towards people. It says here in verse two, fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Boy, you could just camp on this proverb right here. This, This would settle a lot of problems in our culture right now. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, You know, I think we have to sit down sometimes and learn to listen to other people's point of view that's unlike our own and try to seek to understand where they're coming from. Is this a novel thought? Because it says, fools find no pleasure in understanding, but they delight in airing their own opinions. You know, sometimes when you're conversing with somebody, just take a test to yourself. If you're always wanting to get a word in or you're not even listening to what they're saying, you just want to give your own opinion, that's not a good thing. Maybe we have to back off and say to ourselves, you know, yeah, you have your viewpoint, but maybe what I need to learn how to do is to learn to listen with intentionality and learn to hear not even just the words, but the heart of what the person is trying to say. By the way, if you learn to really listen to people, people will want to be your friend. Because people want to be understood. I love that prayer, St. Francis, help me, Lord, not so much to be understood, but to understand. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? How many? It's moving away from ourselves, and it's moving towards the other person. That's what he's talking about here. It says, when wickedness comes, in verse 3, so does contempt, and with shame comes reproach. So there's a number of things that I discover in these first three Proverbs that I think kind of couple them kind of together. It's simply this. That when you know, we're not walking in the fear of God, then we're walking in more of our own self-aim, desire, ambition, and goals. We're less concerned about other people. We tend to want to share our own viewpoints. We're really not in- interested in what other people are saying. And then it says here, you know, we, in verse 3, eventually it develops a contempt for the other person. How many think there's a lot of contempt today for people? And I'm going to talk about how that really develops. So, um, C.P. Ellis, let me give you an example, was a textile worker who grew up learning to blame others for most of his problems. You ever met people like that? You know, they've got problems, but it's everybody else's fault. You know, it's not my problem, it's your problem. In other words, any any problem I have is really because... I, I've got people to blame, you know, my parents didn't do this for me, my teachers didn't do that for me, you know, we have a whole list of people who could have made my life better, right, and that's where he was coming from, and he had a lot of financial struggles, and he was a second generation member of the Ku Klux Klan, how many know they have some problems, you know, you know, they have some biases, and they're, you know, they're, they're racially prejudiced, anybody know that Ku Klux Klan? kind of noted for their racial prejudice. Well, he began to attend interracial civic meetings, and he was extremely vocal about his feelings towards other races. I mean, okay, that, that makes sense. If you're a Ku Klux Klan member, you probably got this stuff wired right in, hardwired right into your innermost being. And as a result, as he was sharing all this, he was asked to work on a policy project with a black woman. How many know that was probably serendipitous? I know somebody had some wisdom there. And so the more the two of them worked together, of course, they're arguing and disagreeing on every turn. But the more they began to see clearly into each other's lives, in other words, eventually they stopped screaming at each other and sat down and started listening to one another, something began to happen in their lives. They began to see things a little differently. And eventually, they were each criticized by their respective communities, and their children were harassed at school because they were willing to start working together. Isn't that interesting? You know, it's almost like there's a spiritual thing going on here. Finally, uh, Ellis' mind began to change, and he eventually uh, ran for president of his union to promote equal treatment of workers regardless of race because he had been listening to tapes by Dr. Martin Luther King with tears in his eyes. Now, how many go, that's pretty radical? How many think that's a pretty radical thing, that a Ku Klux Klan member could literally have a transformation of heart where he was now willing to see that there needed to be equality for all? How many think that's kind of a miracle? And when you have a change of heart, it begins to change your attitude, your actions, eventually your your words, and what you're willing to do for other people. The wisdom writers discuss how the issues of our hearts affect how we see things. How we see life determines whether we make wise, just, and righteous decisions. Proverbs 18.5, I'm gonna skip over some things here. Wait a minute Let me go back. Oh, okay. I'm confusing my PowerPoint here. I'm skipping over something. Oh, okay. In Proverbs 18.5, it said, it's not good to be partial to the wicked and so deprive the innocent of justice. And uh, that's true. And, and we recognize that this certainly happened under uh, da- uh, King David's reign. Those were a few verses where some people brought news of, of killing the king. Uh, the king of the northern ten tribes, the son of Saul, Ishbosheth, and they thought they're going to be rewarded by David. You know what David did? He said, "Man, you guys murdered an innocent man," and he had them executed. So, you know, he was following the words of Proverbs eighteen five. But let me move on and just say this: the end result of wrong words <clears throat> is that they eventually affect people who are saying those things. In that case, those those men were judged for that. But notice what Jesus says to us. Jesus himself warns us about empty or idle words. Now, some of us probably say a lot of things, and we have no idea that they're all being, you know, in a sense, reflecting. It's a reflection of who we are as a person, all these words. And God takes our words seriously. Now, maybe other people don't take what you're saying seriously, but I want you to know God takes what you're saying seriously. Either they're good words or they're not so good words, but he's paying attention. And here in Matthew chapter 12, verse uh, 34 to 37, Jesus is talking to uh, some of the religious leaders, and he calls them there in verse 34. He says, you brood of vipers. He says, how, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks with what the heart is full of. So this idea of what we say is really indicative of where our hearts are at, our innermost being, our attitudes. Jesus is saying that. He's basically saying what you're saying, that's coming from within you. He says a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. Or you could say a wise man. Uh, An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. So let me me just go back here and say this. Where does... The wrong language, the wrong words come from? And the answer is within us. It's coming from within us, it's coming from our innermost being. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Wow, this is pretty serious stuff. But for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So, in other words, Jesus goes, I don't even need to judge you guys, you're judging yourselves just by the way you talk. So maybe we need to take a step back and say, Lord, I need to evaluate what I'm saying. You know, as a matter of fact, the wisdom literature, like Proverbs, there's an encouragement to restrain our words, you know, to, to speak less. How many know that might be wisdom on our part to say less and listen more, and we probably would learn more, and we probably wouldn't get in as much trouble? How many say that's probably true? Anybody here might say that might work for me. I might have to learn to say a little less. Okay, the problem with words is the devastating impact those words have really on our most on our innermost part of our being. Matter of fact, in Proverbs 18:4, this is such an interesting text. It says, the words of the mouth are deep waters but the fountain of wisdom is a rushing stream. Now, there's a little bit of a difference of an opinion on interpreting this particular text because some people see this as you know, a parallel uh, proverb, meaning that they both mean the same thing, but then there's a bunch of them, including translations like the NIV, the King James Version, the New Revised Standard Version, and many other commentators, commentators see this as an anti- antithetical proverb, which means it's, it's the opposite. It's, it's trying to point an opposite statement. And you can see that in the NIV here, the word but is put in there. How many see that? See that? See, that word but is supplied by the translators. That word isn't even in there. That's why there's a difference of an opinion, okay? But the majority of scholars think this is the opposite. So what are they saying? The deep waters are problematic. The rushing water, the stream, the fountain of wisdom is a rushing stream, is seen as a a good thing, where the deep waters is seen as a negative thing. It's hidden. You can't see it. And um, Bruce Walke, who is an Old Testament scholar, argues that the word deep occurs 16 times, seven times in Leviticus 13 of a sword that is more than skin deep. In other words, it's, it's further in there. Otherwise, it's used in poetry of physical depth. So let's remember something. We're reading what now in Proverbs? This is poetry, folks. Always what a negative connotation of inaccessibility and or foreboding danger. In that light, the deep water in verse 18, 4, which we're looking at, and 20, verse 5, connotes that the person's word and plans are respectively are unfathomable, inaccessible, non-beneficial, and probably potentially dangerous. Well, simply what he's saying is that the words coming from an innermost being can be very dangerous words. And, you know, how many know that a lot of times people can use, you know, they can be saying words, but they can be deceptive words, or they can be words meant to manipulate people. Anybody ever been manipulated by people? And it's just by words, right? They're manipulating us through words. That's what they're doing. And that's what he's talking about here. That's what the wisdom writer is talking about here. And your words coming from a heart distorted by sin can easily be deceptive, manipulative, and destructive, not only for the person hearing the words, but also the person speaking the words. And a few verses later, we have one of the most powerful examples of how damaging words really are and the impact they have on the human heart in Proverbs 18, verse 8. This is a very interesting proverb. It says, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. that go down to the innermost parts. Now, that the Hebrew word here for gossip can also be translated slander. You know, a lot of times gossip is all rumor, and a lot of it is innuendo, and most of it is even truth, right? And yet it says it's so enticing when we hear negative things about people. He says it's like eating a choice morsel, and it goes where does it end up? Well, literally, that word innermost parts. It's talking about our inner being, but. If you're in Hebrew, Hebrew doesn't have abstract language. It's more concrete. So if you were going to translate this, like right from the Hebrew word to our word, it would be stomach. So in other words, it's like eating dainty morsels and ends up in our stomach, okay? That's what he's trying to get across here. You say, well, why is that so interesting? Well, it says uh, this form of communication is... Think of it this way. This communication, when you hear this kind of communication, when we're taking in gossip, it's like eating it. And where does it end up? Inside of us. Okay? And we digest it. And eventually, it's going to come back out of us. All right? Now, I was shocked when I was studying this text because the word choice morsel actually. Is only translated choice morsel here in this proverb. When that same Hebrew word is used in other Old Testament parts, it's literally the word grumbling and complaining. And I went, what? It doesn't even make sense. How do you translate one part choice morsel and then some other parts translate a grumbling and complaining? But then I had to think about it. If this is poetry and what he's really saying is that this information comes into us like food and it goes into our stomach and impacts us, what the other parts of the Old Testament and mainly in the, the wilderness wanderings where the Israelites were noted for their What? grumbling and complaining. They're kind of going through this wilderness, and God is the one leading them through the wilderness. How many know it's an amazing thing? First of all, he delivers them out of slavery. Think about that. And he brings them into the promised land. He reveals himself to them, builds a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. They've seen these amazing miracles, right? And God's providing for you know two million people in a wilderness, and all they do through the whole journey is what? grumble and complain now we look at those guys and go what in the world is wrong with those guys anybody think like that what in the world's wrong with these guys but yet let me just make a little application how many know that you and i have been saved by god's grace we've experienced amazing miracles in our life god keeps providing for us and we're wandering through this wilderness called life and a lot of the times what are we doing what are we doing we're grumbling and complaining. We're not happy about this. We're not happy about this. We're just carrying on. And you know, it's, it's so amazing to me. You know, God is listening to this whole conversation. And a lot of times the reason why we're, you know, grumbling and complaining is because we've been feeding ourselves bad stuff. You know, how many have ever heard that expression? You know, you have somebody grumbling and complaining and we say to them, what's eating you, right? Right, don't we kind of say that, what's eating you? Maybe we should basically say, What have you been eating? Because, you know, what's eating you is not what's been eating you, it's what you've been eating, and now it's coming out of you. And what we're getting is this nasty attitude and carrying on and grumbling. And, and yet, when I read the scriptures, I get the sense that the wise person is somebody who's not eating this, this nasty material and who is now has this beautiful spirit within them, and they've been focusing in on the right thing. And how many heard the sermon last week when I talked about what are you feeding your soul? Anybody hear that sermon? And I kind of challenged us and gave us a little homework assignment. How many remember that? And what were we supposed to do? We were supposed to focus on what? All the good things and all the wonderful things and allow our spirit to come out of this oppression that comes from all of this garbage. And, <clears throat> you know, we got to feed our soul good food and if we start to do that all of a sudden our spirit lifts and all of a sudden there's joy in our heart and we begin to be thankful and praise God because you know every challenge that's come into your life is really an opportunity for God to do something amazing i'm going to just say that to us so every challenge is actually a test to see what's really going on in the inside And how we express ourselves tells us if we're passing the test or failing the test. So how many here, you had an amazing week. You were thanking God all week long. You were happy. You were rejoicing. Or did some of you fail the test and you found yourself, you know, eating the wrong stuff and you've been walking around grumbling and complaining? Don't raise your hands. I'm just asking the question, right? I don't want to indict anybody here, but that kind of happens, right? Okay, let's move on. It says, the lips of fools bring them strife and their mouths invite a beating. So, you know, a lot of times we're our own worst enemy. That's what this proverb says. A lot of times, you know, we're carrying on and zipping along and we are creating conflict in our relationships because of the things we're saying to one another. And he says, and then what happens is we're really inviting blows in our lives, you know. We can't understand why we're not getting along with people. Hey, listen, you know. He's showing us the condition of our heart again. It's amazing when we walk in wisdom. It's amazing when we're full of compassion. It's amazing when we're listening to people and we're kind and and we try to hear the other point of view, how often we avert conflict. But you know, some of us, we're looking for a fight, you know? There's some people just looking to start up an argument. Well, that's not a good thing. So let me move on now. Uh, the mouth up fools are their undoing and their lips are a snare to their very lives. And by the way, is that true? That, you know, your your mouth can get you into big trouble. Look what happened. Paul warns us here a little later on in, in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to make the application because Paul's making an application from those wilderness Israelites. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. What's he talking about? That's the deliverance. You know, out of Egypt. And then he says here in the next verse, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. didn't say all of them. Yeah, I mean, there's a few people like Joshua and Caleb. Man, they were people of faith. They spoke. They believed God. They trusted God. They said, we can do it. We can go into the promised land. But most of them kind of succumbed to the grumbling and complaining, right? Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. What a way to describe a whole generation perishing in the wilderness. That's what he's saying here. He says, Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Now, that's the warning. What are we setting our hearts on? And then it says, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Now, let me just point out, the destroying angel killed a bunch of Egyptians. Remember the firstborn? The destroying angel passed over people who applied the blood over their hearts. But guess what? Some of those people that applied the blood over the lentils of their door, doorposts went out in the wilderness and started complaining, and that same angel that didn't kill them there killed them in the wilderness. Whoa, that's a little intense, Pastor. Well, that's, isn't that what Paul's telling us? So I think we have to take this a little more seriously. So we think it's no big thing that we're a grumpy person. We think it's no big thing that we're walking around, you know, complaining and carrying on and all the rest of it. God's going, hey, I'm listening to everything you're saying down there. And I'm not pleased with that. You know, you guys, speaking of us guys, you and me, the believers, we should be the happiest people on the planet. We should be the most grateful people on the planet. We should know that we have a security in Almighty God, which brings me uh, to the second element, and it's simply the improper trust and wealth. And you say, how does that relate to relationships? It's a big deal, and I'll show you how it relates. When we focus on things rather than people we end up becoming impoverished. Isn't that sad? How, how often do we put things ahead of people? In the end, we end up with no, you know, a bunch of things and no people. That's the sad part, you know? When we invest our time and our energy, what, where we put that? our time and energy says more about where we're putting our confidence in, where, we, where we're looking for our security. And is it in our bank account or is it in, in our intimacy with God? Because intimacy with God speaks of relationship you know, looking for security in our bank account, there's no need for a relationship. Isn't that true? You know, the ultimate source of security. That's what we're going to talk about. Where are we going to find that? Some people use money as a security and a means of power and influence at the expense of justice and healthy relationships. People are doing other people in just to get, you know, financially ahead. We are constantly bombarded with the messaging that safety comes from having economic security. How many go, that's the constant messaging. You know, you got to save up for retirement. I'm not negating some of these things. I'm just saying when we put our trust in these things, we're going to be deeply disappointed because that's what we're being taught here. It says, uh, as a matter of fact, if we, you know, think about even the, the political leaders in our country. What do they all talk about? It's always about the economy. We seem very little concerned about You know, we say, well, we're concerned about people's well-being. Let me just point out to you, if we're really concerned about people's well-being, why don't we do something about abortion, euthanasia? I can just go down a list of things. But we're not interested in that stuff. You don't even hardly hear about that stuff because, you know what, that's not politically correct language, Pastor. We're talking about the economy. And, you know, people that hope to win a political office many times, they don't want to speak about, I think, the real issues And we're dealing with this other issue because we have the false value system. Paul warns us as Christians, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. See, that's all part of the earthly nature. He goes, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is what? Idolatry. Now, you know what's been fascinating? Well, let's just look at these these texts here in Proverbs, and then I'll get to a verse that I think is interesting. He says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So what is God saying? Because of these things, I will judge humanity. God says, I'm going to address people when they're idolaters. Does anybody know that the reason why the Israelites went into exile was because they were idolaters? It was idolatry. And if you don't think they were idol worshipers, you know, how many have come on a trip with me to Israel? Okay. Do you know what the guides tell us? They found so many idols in the land of Israel. And you know who was using them? God's people. Because you see, they were idolaters. We need to understand that. You know, it it wasn't that they were digging so deep they were finding all these Canaanite stuff. No, the Israelites were seduced by the prevailing culture of its day and soon began to worship the gods of the people that they, in a sense, conquered. Isn't that true? They assimilated right into that stuff. And you know, sometimes as Christians, we assimilate into the values of this culture. The only real securities are standing before God. Look at Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. What are they saying? God is like a fortified tower. When we're threatened, we run to God. And, folks, that's what I want to tell us right now. I don't know what challenge that you're faced with right now in your life, but if you'll run to God, that's that's your strength. That's your security. And you know what? That's a great place to find security because God can keep us from illness. God can keep us from a lot of things that people are fearful of. God can, I'm not saying he always does, but God can. And it's interesting when I was reading in Ezekiel how God says, just mark all the righteous people in the city because I'm going to destroy Jerusalem, but I'm going to spare all the ones that I'm marking off as righteous. And he spared them. What did he spare them from? Famine, plague, and war. Isn't that amazing? He says, I'm going to keep some of them. I'm going to spare some of them. Wow. I want to be some of the people God spares. I want to I run to God as my source of refuge. It says, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. How many see that there's a little bit of play from the verse before? It says, the wise person runs to God. The foolish person puts their security in their economic prowess, in their economic assets. They see it as a high wall here, too high to scale. Wow. Interesting. Now, Dr. Longman points out it's true that wealth can help us navigate some problems in life, but it lets us down in the area of life ultimate issues. Let me give you some ultimate issues it's going to let you down in. You know, when disease strikes, war comes, famine comes, plague comes, then you start realizing how vulnerable you really are. You can have all the money in the world. It's not going to do you an ounce of good. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 18.12 says, Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. And so here we see the connection now between what the wealthy see as a wall too high and the heart that is lifted up. So what is the proper response to the things that destroy us? Run to God. Run to God. Make that your refuge. You know, I've been... I've been reading through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. That's been my devotional reading for a while now. And, you know, I'm really struck by, you know, the messaging of those men before the people of God. I mean, how how many know it was not easy to tell them, you know, you're going to be defeated by a nation more evil than yourselves? How many go, that's not an easy message to deliver, right? And they were in a minority position. Both those guys were. There was a lot of other people that were religious people saying the very opposite messaging everything's going to be okay. And they said, no, it's not going to be. Unless you repent and turn to God, we're going to be judged because of our idolatry. And they kept saying it. And then uh, it's interesting here that Ezekiel, and I read this and I couldn't, I couldn't stop but focus on this text. Uh, I think the other day when I read this, I was so struck by it. In light of the fact that I was preparing this message and looking at how the Wealthy find their security and wealth. Listen to what Ezekiel says. They will throw their silver in the streets and their gold will be treated as a thing unclean. Their silver and gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. It, is not, it will not satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs for it has caused them to stumble into sin. How many say that's, that's wild? In other words, they were putting their trust in their resources and God says, your resources will not be able to help you in the time of judgment you know now we don't we don't ever talk about that today we act as if you know God is so loving he will never judge anybody isn't that kind of the theology this is the prevailing theology of our day can I just tell us something that if you believe that you're you're gonna get yourself into trouble because God's going to address whatever's wrong in our life and why will he do that because he's a good parent A good parent will never leave something that's totally wrong in their children's life without speaking to it and addressing it in their lives. That's a loving thing to do. Why? Because if we don't address the wrong in our life, it destroys us. It's real simple. So why, if God is the most loving person, why wouldn't he address what's wrong in our lives? He's going to speak into those issues in our lives. And if we're putting our trust in the wrong thing, it's going to bring about destruction in our lives. It's going to destroy our relationships. How many, how many people have actually put money ahead of their family? They've gone out and worked all these hours, and they're telling themselves, I'm doing it for my family, but they're neglecting their family in the process. And in the end, they have all these material goods, but in the end, they lost their family in the process. How many? Has that happened a few times? More than we'd like to admit. And it's happened a lot in this affluent culture called Alberta and in the oil patch. Come on, let's be honest. We know that this is true. For those who are trusting in their wealth, they often are seen imposing their will to accomplish their desires. Isn't that interesting? You know, people that are very wealthy, so used to getting their way, and they like to use their wealth as a form of power over other people. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 18:16: A gift opens the way and ushers the giver into the presence of the great. Now, that sounds like a real nice thing, but what he's basically saying is they're using their resources to have people that are greater than themselves bestow on them a favor. They're basically bribing. We, we don't like to use that term, but they're making a way. They're, they're getting access so that they're, they're, their side of the story can be told. It says, Paul Copteck says, the gift only seeks to buy access to power. In the next few Proverbs, we have the contention in relationships that actually requires some measure of mediation. How many know relationships sometimes require mediation? Somebody in the middle helping them get through their problem. It says here in verse 17, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. And how many, we can just apply this. Yeah, this is probably dealing with a civic situation, a court situation. But isn't it true, you know, people come to someone and they share their side of the story. Now, when you've lived for a little while, how many know there's two sides to every story? Does anybody know that? And, you know, if you hear the one side and you get all excited and pick, like, you know, you're going to champion that person. Maybe you ought to go to the other side and find out what's the other side of the story is. You know, like, you know, what's the rest of the story? Well, here's the rest of the story. And sometimes when you're sitting there listening to it, you go, it doesn't even sound like the first story. And maybe somewhere in the middle is the truth, right? So it's we tell a story based on our perception of it and our lack of objectivity, and this is what we heard, and this is what we understood, and this is how we felt, and this is what came down to us. And the other person can say, yeah, well, this is, the, this is what happened, and this is how I saw it, and this is what I felt, and this is what I understood. And sometimes there's a communication problem, and the relationship is severed. And if you're the mediating party, you need to hear both sides. That's what he's saying here. And then there's times when you have two people that are so in and do, do, indomitable in their position, they won't move, that it says here, casting the lots settles disputes and keeps strong opponents apart. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, the casting of the lots in, in the Old Testament is, was cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The casting of lots was what the priests would do to determine the will of God. They would cast the Urim and the Thummim, and this would decide what God's will was. And what he's basically saying here is this was a priestly function, to attain what God's will is. But we don't do that today. That's not a method that we're using. Some people say, wouldn't that be great? No, it wouldn't. Because even when you tell people what God's word is, which is even better than casting a lot, people ignore it. As a matter of fact, I was so fascinated by Jeremiah. You know, These guys come along and say, hey, Jeremiah, tell us, should we go to Egypt or not? And we'll do whatever God tells us to do. You know, whatever you say, we know that you're hearing from God. Just tell us what God wants us to do. And Jeremiah comes to him and says, don't go to Egypt. Stay in the land. God will bless you here. They go, you didn't hear from God. We're going to Egypt. (laughs) You know, isn't that funny? We're so funny. We go, yeah, I really want to hear from God, Pastor. But if we hear a message that's not what we want to hear, we go, that can't be God. You know, isn't that, you know, we want God to bend to our will. But really, if we're a wise person, we're saying, Lord, I really do want to do your will. Even if I don't like what I'm hearing, I'm going to do what you're telling me to do. And that's the power of the word of God. Sometimes we're reading it and we go, wow, I need to change my mind. I need to change my actions. I need to maybe go to this person and say, I'm wrong. I I came at this the wrong way. Forgive me. We have a lot of healing in relationships. So I think there's a lot of Christians today that, Because they've put finances, you know, they say, well, yeah, I'm I'm a believer, but really finances are driving their decisions. And what happens is they take advantage of other believers financially. You don't think this happens? How many know that this probably happens, even in the church, that believers take advantage of other believers? You go, how do I know this? Well, I've been a pastor for too long. And number two, I'm moving on. Oh, I didn't put these down. But let me just read this from... uh, first uh, corinthians uh, paul addresses the issue of lawsuits between believers in the corinthian church and he basically says look if you can't agree go to someone that's got wisdom and help settle the dispute but if you know what and if you can't settle the dispute the other person won't listen he says even be willing to be wronged in other words lay down your rights But he says, no, you guys are going to the law courts now and trying to fight it out. He goes, that's not what a believer should be doing. And you know what's happening? We actually are doing this right now, and there's a court case right now before the Supreme Court of Canada because church members were fighting with each other, and a ruling was given in a lower court. The higher court initially ruled that, you know, the courts were not, they couldn't make decisions within the confines of a religious life. But now there was a lower court ruling just this year that said the courts can now mediate in church policy. And that's, a, that's being taken to the Supreme Court because what it's basically saying is the courts could come in and just start ruling and saying, well, we don't like what the Bible says here or whatever there and rule in a certain way. And, and so this is a big issue that's coming up today. That's just because people went to the courts rather than settling it in-house. And think about it. We're the people that are saying, hey, we know the God of love. Do we really know the God of love? Well, then why don't we prefer one above the other? That's what we're, we're trying to understand here. So wise and godly people place a greater value on relationship than on things. How many know that's true? How many know wise person's ultimate confidence and security is in God, not things? That the wise person knows to run to God as their fortress and strength in a time of trouble. It's interesting, Henry Nouwen wrote to his nephew following the the emerging prosperity after World War II in his home country, the Netherlands. He was Dutch. And then he writes to him and he says, "'I've noticed one thing in particular, increasing prosperity has not made people "'more friendly towards one another. "'Oh, they're better off, but the newfound wealth "'has not resulted in a new sense of community. I get the impression that people are more preoccupied with themselves and have less time for one another than when they didn't possess so much. Isn't that interesting? There's more competitiveness, more envy, more unrest, and more anxiety. There's less opportunity to relax, to get together informally, and enjoy the little things in life. Success has isolated a lot of people and made them lonely. It seems sometimes as though meetings between people generally happen on the way to something or someone else there's always something else more important and more pressing and of more consequence. And the higher up you get on the ladder of prosperity, the harder it is to become, to to be together, to sing together, to pray together, to celebrate life together in a spirit of thanksgiving. Wow. What do you think of that? Maybe God is doing us a favor by allowing this time of economic difficulty to get us to focus away from the things that really don't matter in order to focus on the things that really do matter. And what is that, pastor? Each other. That we would learn to love God and each other more deeply. Let's stand. Well, these little proverbs, they have a way of, if you get into them, they're very practical. Anybody see that? And they really want to speak to us. And what I'm trying to tell us today is the only way we can change what we're saying to people is by changing what? Our heart. Isn't that right? So if you are having relational difficulties, I'm going to ask you one or two questions. Number one, is it because of what you're saying? And what you're saying is really indicative of where your heart is at. So we gotta change our heart. Or we're putting our trust in ourselves, in a a system, an economic system. Or are we saying, Lord, you are my security. You are my source. There can be pestilence, COVID-19, You know, we're not in a time of war, thank God, but that could happen. You know, a time of famine where there's even a lack to eat. Just think about how hard it can be. Are we walking around grumbling and complaining? Are we feeding our soul on garbage and working ourselves up? I'm really convinced that Satan's strategy right now is to work up the saints so that we're all bent out of shape about a whole bunch of stuff that really doesn't matter because most of what we're reading and hearing is not true anyways but we're sucking it all in and eating it up until it's finally eating us, and then we're spewing out all kinds of nonsense out of our lips. God's going, what are you doing? You know, Should that be the way we live as Christians? I'm just asking a question. Is that the way we should live as Christians? Or should we be saying, Lord, I wanna feed my soul on the richness of your word, the richness of your presence. I wanna think about the things that are good and pure and lovely. I wanna be a person who just seeks to be understanding, who listens. I may not always agree with what the person's telling me, but I am going to show them dignity and value and not show them contempt. If you think you're going to win people over by putting them down, good luck. Good luck. That's, that's not going to work. You know. But when you show people value and you listen and you care about them, they may know you don't agree with them, but I'll tell you something. Love has a way of penetrating even the hardest heart. And I think a lot of people in our culture today are lonely, and they're isolated. Isn't that true? Not just because of COVID. They're just isolated in their emotions. They're isolated in their relationships. So how many here today, you say, you know, pastor, as I'm listening to all this, I realize I need God to work in my heart. I need to start feeding my soul good stuff, amen? So just with every head bowed right now, let me ask a question. Do you need God to touch your heart this morning? Just raise your hand, that's you. I've been finding myself grumpy, complaining, not filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. Is that you? Just raise your hand, we're gonna pray. Just raise your, be honest. Yeah, I'm not here to condemn you. God's not here to condemn you, by the way. He's here to correct you. He's here to empower you. He's here to help you. He's here to renew your heart. I've been praying for us saying, Lord, renew our hearts. Lord, would you do that today? Would you pour out your spirit inside of us? Would you bring renewal in our hearts? Would you bring grace into our soul? Would you give us wisdom in what we're feeding, our innermost being? Help us to eat the right kind of food so that we can process correctly and speak what you want us to speak, to have the heart of God, to have the attitude of God, to have the spirit of Christ Lord, to be able to dialogue with our community, even if they're showing contempt maybe to us, that we can show love and grace in turn. Isn't that what you meant, Jesus, when you said to turn the other cheek? Isn't that what you meant when you said to bless those that despitefully use you, do good to those who don't do good to you? Lord, help us to overcome the evil in our land by doing good. And Lord, it starts with a good heart. So give us a good heart, Father. Would you do that work inside of us right now, Lord, Would you bring joy into our heart? Would you bring a spirit of gladness within our soul? Would you help us, Lord, to be people who thank you daily and just full of worship and gratitude? Lord, we live in an amazing country. We live with incredible, unprecedented blessing and prosperity, Lord, like people have never known before. When I look around the world, I just think of how blessed we really are. Father, may we just be so overjoyed with gratitude and thanksgiving. Lord, may we be little... Oasis of grace, oasis of joy, oasis of happiness and blessing. When people see us, they go, I want what you've got. Because while they're walking around complaining and grumping and everything else, we're walking around rejoicing and delighting, and they'll say, I want what you've got. How do you get it? Lord, that's when the believers, the unbelievers, are going to ask us, What makes us different? Because when we listen to the same messaging, we become like the culture. We sound like the culture. We behave like the culture. But Lord, when we allow your spirit to work in our hearts, we allow your word to do a work of grace in our soul. It brings about transformation in our heart. It changes our communication. It changes our attitude. It changes our level of uh, respect and gratitude and honor to those to whom honor is due. And I just pray that you'd bring about that change in our lives. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave. Let the ushers take you out, please, and go pick up your kids. Bless you.